0: is nancy year and welcome to nancy's psychic view on the high road to humanity and boy have we got a show for you today we have a lovely lady here today gwen mcphail is here and welcome to the high road gwen
1: thank you glad to be here thank you for including me
0: oh man this is cool she's written this cool book my place among them uh the pen name that she uses is jay stanion and you guys this is uh Wow, what what a historical book this is. She's, it's her latest work. She's an opportunity to reflect on the past and the present. She draws from the well of history and uncovers life lessons that resonate more profoundly than ever in today's world. We're going to be talking about the Native Americans. Um, this literary, literary time machine, my place among them, guides us through history and offers invaluable insights on resilience culture, understanding, and the intricate workings of politics and bureaucracy. And I got to tell you, this is a cool story because this is passed down from your great-grandfather. He wrote this, but it never was published. Then it went to your grandmother, from what I understand. Then it went to your father. And then in 2020, you decided to put this together. I mean, I just I want to hear your story. I want to hear what happened. And then I'm going to read. I'm just going to read this really quick before you even tell your story. (laughs) This is such a beautiful book. I just want to read this. This is the creek. So sit back and relax a second. Sitting Bull was one of the principal leaders of the Lakota people. He had fought against white soldiers and settlers for many years and had foretold the defeat of Custer and Little Bighorn, also called the Battle of the Greasy Grass, and even moved to Canada to escape. And I didn't know this, the US Cavalry later. He returned to live on the Standing Rock Reservation, where an Indian agent ordered his arrest by agency police. When Sitting Bull refused to mount a horse and be led away under arrest, a fight ensued, and Sitting Bull was fatally shot. And that's the beginning. So I want you to tell the story.
1: Well, at, at that point, um, there there had been a, they called him a messiah, who came from out west, possibly Arizona, New Mexico area. His name was Wavoca. And he had... Um, He was sort of like a traveling preacher man in the white world, but he encouraged the Native Americans, he taught them to do something called the ghost dance. And um, in the ghost dance, they wore shirts that had very specific symbols painted on them and they danced a very specific way. And he taught the believers in the ghost dance that if they danced the ghost dance, wore their shirts, um, then the white man would be uh, flooded away washed away from the earth and their their dead relatives and all the dead buffalo would come back to their lands and the and they would you know rule the plains again like they had in the past so um, there were of course a lot of, of Native uh, leaders who did not believe in the ghost dance who understood that the whites were here to stay that they that it was going to be a a, a not good, future for the native americans Uh, but there were those that wanted to leave they were so unhappy they perhaps they had lost family members and they were just you know devoid of any hope and so they they did participate in the dance and it was loud and it was um it was not understood by the white people so they were afraid of it they were afraid when they saw the ghost dancers and they remembered the history of the of the masquerade at, at on the greasy grass Um, and Custer's death, so it it was all very frightening. The whites were afraid, the Native Americans were afraid, and much like today, in the middle of it was a lot of newspaper reporters who wanted to sell papers back East. And so sometimes the stories, it didn't matter if they were true as long as they sold newspapers. And so it built up and built up and the government was a little bit afraid of the Native Americans. And so what happened was after Sitting Bull's death, the rest of the people who lived there on the Standing Rock Reservation, led by a, a chief called uh, Spotted Elk, uh, who the white man called Bigfoot, they decided that it was in their best interest to travel to Pine Ridge Reservation uh, in order to be safe. Pine Ridge was fairly settled. Red Cloud had been to Washington. He was well-respected by the white leaders um and they wanted to talk with him about what did the future hold you know where can we find hope right so they actually in, in the middle of winter um i believe sitting bull was killed on the 15th of december yeah it was in that, the middle of winter
0: yeah i think you wrote that, in here it was december well oh no that december 29th is what i read or is that when the battle was
1: that was wounded knee. That was okay, the massacre at Wounded Knee. My no, bad, no, that's though. all right. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, after after Sitting Bull was killed, his the people there where he was where he was murdered decided it was best to travel from Standing Rock to Pine Ridge, which was a significant journey. Um mm-hmm. several hundred miles. And um uh, Bigfoot was actually he had pneumonia, he was already ill. Um but they gathered up and they started traveling. Right now, there is a memorial ride being undertaken by the youth of the Lakota tribe, re, you know, redoing that same ride. They ride on horseback in the snow, wow. um, in cold. And so those people traveled. They were trying to get to Pine Ridge Agency and join up with um Red Cloud. But unfortunately on the path, on the trail, they came to Wounded Creek and they ran into what what was now known as the Seventh Cavalry. It was what was left plus all the new recruits of Custer's Seventh Cavalry.
0: Right.
1: And they they asked them to surrender, so they did. So they surrendered and they camped that night, but then the next morning the soldiers were, you know, riding around the camp. Um certainly they were not, they did not like the Native Americans. They were angry because their leader had been killed. And somewhere a gun went off. There's lots of stories about how it happened. But as soon as the gun went off, the soldiers began to fire. And that resulted in the massacre of, of so many men, women, and children, mostly women and children and older men who were not armed there at Wounded Knee Creek. And that was known... It, for a long time, it was actually called the Battle of Wounded Knee. And then over time, as history was, as it revealed that it was not a battle, it was actually just a massacre.
0: Yeah, I read um, in your book, and I wanted to just mention that a lot of the soldiers were killed from their own men firing at them because it was such an erratic um, you know, massacre that even their own were were massacred. It, it was like a crate, like somebody shot the gun and then
1: they just went nuts. Yeah, yeah, that's that's sort of what happened. They they were so um, there was so much angst against the Native Americans, and they were so caught up in the fury of of, of what was going on at the time. The soldiers just just fired randomly, just everywhere. It, it didn't matter if they killed children. It didn't matter if they killed women, um, and in some cases, they actually shot their own men. Yeah, um, in that case, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's horrible. This is horrible, and I'm just going to ask you. And I I made it through most of this, but I didn't get through the whole book. And what a wonderful read! And it's so well written, you guys. I have to tell you, just from me reading that, you should realize it. But um, there's so much cool information in here. But you know, what was documented about this? What does history say? I was just curious about this. Does it? I mean, at the time that it happened, was there any kind of repercussion because of what they did, because of them killing hundreds of Native Americans,
1: Indians at this point? No, at this time, at that time, um, there, it, there was truly a government policy. They wanted to eradicate the Native Americans. Their goal was to um, to simply overwhelm them because there were so many white settlers that wanted land. They wanted the the East, you know, we had colonized the East and and they were wanting to move West and move West and move West. And there was only so much land, just like there is today. Uh, There's only so much um, places, so many places to build homes and build farms. And so there was no, in fact, actually that some of the soldiers were given medals within days of that for what they considered bravery in battle.
0: Right. Even that. though
1: later other soldiers came back and said, "Well, maybe it wasn't a battle. Let's really admit that there was not a lot of brave there that were armed. Let's really look at what happened and think twice." But it it took two more generations really in order for um the white government and society to accept that it wasn't a battle. It was a massacre. Um, the The natives were fighting for their homes, not that they weren't just out to kill white people. They were fighting for their lives, their their place to live.
0: You know, it's interesting how history repeats itself. We see the same thing going on in Israel. Yes. Hamas wants to get rid of the Jewish people. It's the same thing that happened to the Native Americans. They wanted to just take their land and get rid of it. It was all about land. It was all about land. And
1: it's all know, about land.
0: Yeah, and I just want to say something as I was reading this and I was you know all I could think of is, you know, how can you t- how could they have stood there and killed all of those people? The value of human life. How could they in their heart and soul do that? I mean, you really have to be hardened to do something like that. I'm just, you know, mentioning that it would be a, it was a horrible thing.
1: Well, and it and it is, it is so, um, it, it's still true today, regardless of, of what group you're talking about. Uh, and you see the comment that the way to destroy, the way to get to power frequently is to divide the people around you by convincing them to hate each other. And then they fight each other while you ascend to power. And I think that was exactly what was happening at that point.
0: It's crazy. Let's rewind a little bit. Let's talk about this because from what I can gather, from what I understand is this was your great grandfather and he documented all these things that happened. And I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, but he couldn't put it out there because he was being, he was a teacher. He was being paid by the government to teach the native Americans to teach the Indians. And I know it's not proper to say Indians, but that's what,
1: No, actually, that was one of the first questions that I asked Quentin. I said, please forgive me in my book because I call you Indians. And he just laughed and he said, it's okay. It's what we call each other. It's not a big deal. They they poke fun at the white people for calling them Native Americans. He said, (laughs) well, that's just for each other. He said, you can call us Indians. Of course, the appropriate term is indigenous people, but they are okay with Indians and it is used historically in the book. So they're okay with it.
0: I'm really glad that we talked about that because I was like, I want to say Indian and you know, the, the world has become crazier and crazier. So let me just understand this. So he wrote everything down. And how much of this, like when you received it, I guess I want to hear the history a little bit. When you finally got this documentation of what happened, what did you receive actually?
1: Well, um, I actually have my great-grandfather's typed copy of the manuscript. It was written with a typewriter on the back of a car dealership stationery. So if you can imagine, he was living in Colorado at the time uh, with his family. He had some health issues as he in his life, which you heard, you know, you read about in this story. Mm -hmm. Um, And so periodically he would he would have to take a little bit of time off and try to recover from the health issues. So at one point in Colorado, he decided to document the life of this young boy that he had met. He had been a survivor. The The boy was a survivor of the masquerade wounded knee. Right. He had met um my my great-grandfather in the classroom. Um, They had gotten to know each other. And so in 1902, he had the opportunity to sit down and write the story. Uh, And he wanted to write it because he wanted to document what he knew was going on that was wrong within the system of mm. the government but but he was he was afraid to publish it because he he would probably lose his job mm. so he, he simply typed it and it was in a i still have the box that it was in oh my god um, and and when he passed away um it it passed to my grandmother who was a nurse so i don't i don't remember much about her we didn't see her as often as i got older especially i I remember her a good bit as a child. I remember her talking about um meeting Iron Horse, the young man, uh, him being at their back door one morning uh, by surprise. He caught them by surprise coming to visit. Okay. Um so she we remembered the stories about him. Um my great grandma my great grandfather thought a great deal of him and his resilience and his persistence in his studies and his um his honesty and openness seemed to be the the traits that that were then passed to my father to look up to and to admire in this young man wow and his so,
0: name is John uh, Ironhorse i want to say as you go through the book um his name is John Ironhorse and he was adopted because he he really had no family uh, as the story starts
1: Right. And we, we don't really know. I don't know. Um, I don't think that Ralph, my great grandfather, probably did not know because, he, again, he was from a, an area that was that was off from Pine Ridge. He was from the Standing Rock area originally. And so we're not real sure what his family was like. We don't know if his father had been killed previously or if his family was killed um there at Wounded Knee. Uh, right. That was all something that that my great-grandfather did not know.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So I want people to know Pine Ridge Reservation is in South Dakota. So the story starts out in South Dakota. Um, but you know I, I just would like to know how long did your great-grandfather teach at the reservation? And he became the superintendent. I mean he went on to be the principal, the superintendent of the Federal Indian uh, Service on reservations in Arizona, Wyoming, Montana, and North Carolina. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that and how that all came about?
1: Well, um, Mm -hmm. partly probably because uh, my great-grandfather did want to do a good job and he did want the, the natives, he wanted to teach them, he wanted them to become business people, he wanted them to succeed he but he was also caught up in in trying to raise a family you know he had to have a good salary himself and so just like anybody today he wanted to 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 you know move up the ladder to some right. extent yeah and so um each time that something came along he would apply for positions that were a little bit higher and sometimes he got them sometimes he didn't sometimes his health got in the way um he didn't seem to have a lot of patience with people that were simply in the system to climb up the ladder.
0: Mm, he did not. not, not good.
1: He, right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He didn't tolerate that. And so I think sometimes he might have been, uh, dad told stories about some of the letters and we have some of the letters that he wrote to the government talking about how the, the Indians were being mistreated in some cases. They, they were not, Um, uh, I I remember in one particular uh, place where he was moved to, he was moved from a job that he had to a new school, and when he got there, the boys in the boys' dorms were sleeping two and three to a bed, and yet just outside um, the entrance of of the school, there were beds that were just, they, they weren't, they just hadn't been pre- repaired. They had not been um, maintained. So they were laying out there and all it would have taken would have been for someone to take the young boys in, in the school, take the equipment that was there at the school and t- teach them the carpentry skills. And they could have repaired the beds and then each child would have had their own beds. And yet the leadership at that particular school was not doing that. They were just saying, oh, we'll just sleep together. We don't care. And the, so you know,
0: that, not to interrupt you, but that reminds. I was no, no, okay. well when I was in Germany, and I went to the concentration where they had the concentration camps. They mm-hmm. showed the small beds with, and they said the people were stacked, and that's what this reminds yeah. me of. I, you know, I, that's how bad it is. Now, was your father able to correct that and oversee that? You know, step in and change things there.
1: In some in some of the places where he was, he was able to change it. In some cases, I remember there there was one, and I I don't have my notes with me right now, um, but there was a school um, in Oklahoma, I believe it was, where where even the natives were so they were so opposed to each other that they did not want to um, be together. So it, he he actually in one classroom, I remember reading the letter he had to hang blankets between the two different the children of the two different tribes because they didn't want to be taught together and so in cases like that he wasn't able to bring about change um so sometimes he just left because it was so discouraging to see the amount of money that was being spent and yet it wasn't necessarily making progress for the for the indians that he was supposed to be helping And so he would leave, he would apply to be moved to another place.
0: Did he live his life completely? I don't want to give away your whole book. (laughs) But did he, did he, um, eventually move off because he lived on the reservation because he taught on the reservation.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: So that became his way of life. Did he live there? Did he live out his days there?
1: Yes, he did on various, uh, he, on various reservations, he was moved around and moved around and moved around, but he did eventually pass away before he was able to retire, and so he actually died on a reservation, and and that was his life.
0: Yeah, that
1: was he did he and he and his first wife had dedicated their lives to that. Right. Uh, his second wife was not as dedicated to the Indians, and in fact, she ended up choosing to live. In Denver, rather than be with him on the reservations at the end. His first wife was Native American, is that right, or part Native American? She was part Native American. We believe that's what? one of those. That's one of those things. In in doing my research about her, I actually found two birth certificates with her name on them. Oh my gosh!
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> and one was on the Pine Ridge Reservation, and her. Parents were listed as unknown, both of them. And the other one was from Ithaca, New York, which at that time, you didn't always, you didn't go into the hospital and have your children and then get a nice little birth certificate from the health department like you do today. Families had to buy the health certificate. So it was possible to purchase a health certificate. And and so I'm not sure which was which, um, But I chose to believe because of her dedication to the Native Americans that perhaps she did have some of of the genetics there that made them her feel so strongly that they were her people.
0: Well, yeah, and you you have a little bit of that um appearance yourself.
1: Well, I I know that in my heart I've always felt like at least yeah I was part Native American yeah um, I I. I have admired them and their way of life and the the values that they had um about they did not accumulate wealth that was not their goal in life right. they they accumulated what they needed and then they gave away what they didn't need to others who needed more
0: and that's the way it should be yes <laughs> if we could change things you know and make them be that way again now has your family you said you did speak with them before you put the book together has your family stayed close to a lot of the families or has that been too many years and it's a separation or?
1: Yeah, it's been, um, it's been so many years. My grandmother, because she was a nurse, she traveled a good bit ultimately. And she just simply kept the book. She did not make any efforts to publish it. I don't, she, she wrote a small journal. Uh, she was good about journaling every day. I actually have her last journal um that but it was she, and i guess to an extent maybe she was a little bit like her father in that she jotted down what happened day to day okay but it was sort of factual you know i went and took care of this man he had this i needed to do that mm-hmm. um you know i had dinner with these people so she moved around quite a bit and when she finally settled in connecticut and and then when she died the book passed to my father So, and that was in 1976. Wow. So for all those years in between from 1902 to 1976, there was no contact that I know of maintained between the Native Americans and my grandmother.
0: So this all took, uh, I just want to kind of let the audience know the time period that we're discussing that's in the book. It starts in 1878 and goes
1: to 1936.
0: Right. um, Right. I mean, this is. I, I have to say. I mean, I see some awards here. Do you want to talk about the awards that this book has won, real quick? Here.
1: Well, it it's won a number. I I don't even remember all of them. It it just. I can read them. One. <laughs> and,
0: you, and you can say there is one that's you the Li- literary titan book award. It won. right. Um, I'm trying to read these. This one says my eyes aren't as good as I used to be. Um, looks like the wick the
1: HTC fi- uh five star award is that right that's the historical fiction company's five star readers award that yeah. is that was given because the readers selected it as a as a well-written easy to read book yeah um it's not um in in writing i learned that there's a difference between literary novels and historical novels literary tend to use bigger words Uh, longer sentences, more, um, I call it flowery writing. Yeah. Um, Whereas I tried to keep mine very simple because it was simple. You know, they struggled to speak English. Um, I'm sure that my grandfather spoke Lakota, although I can't type that or write that into the book. But it was always a very simple, very basic communication. So that's how I tried to write the book. I love it. and there that are key. pictures.
0: I just want people to know there's pictures. There's the the dance house at Potato Creek you have in here. Um, you have the one I really liked. I have to tell you the one that really hit me was Liz with Spotted Horse's wife. I don't know if you guys can see this, but here's this little white baby with this dark Native American lady. I mean, that, that's classic. I love it. I love it. You know, um, I'm so glad you wrote this or he wrote this and that you, You know, uh, did you expand it a little bit, I guess, on things or did you keep it? How did you do it? I just want to ask that question. Is that okay?
1: (laughs) Well, he he did not include anything about himself in his in his book because he was working to tell the story of the Indians and and the, the struggles of this young boy as he came up through the education system. That was what Ralph, the original author, was so focused on was the tragedy of the education program of the government to the Indians mm-hmm. so um um that was his focus, so he didn't really talk a lot about himself, but yet, as I presented it to publishers and talked about you know talked to agents and people that were interested in it in some cases um uh, some cases they had problems. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems that I faced was in this day and time there is so much judgment of people about other people, and they they look at you and say, "Oh, you're white. How would you know about a Native American boy, or you're a white woman? You can't tell this story. You weren't there." And so I felt like in order That's to sad. Make... <laughs> it is sad. Sorry, right, I just have to say that.
0: That's really. I mean, were you shocked? Were you surprised?
1: I was, yeah. I was very surprised at that. Yes. Um, I was, I was very surprised to know that there are actually people called sensitivity editors today who will read a book and tell you, Oh, no, this might get too much public reaction. You probably better not say this. Uh, is that the idea? Be- <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, that was sort of the way I thought, but, um, oh so the, the chapters about my great grandfather who is Carter Heath in the book, mm-hmm. um, They were written based on his employment records and the copies of the letters and things that we have that he wrote. Mm -hmm. So they were that was my way of making of putting him into the story. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted people to understand that there was a relationship between he and John and that he was also living a life as a young father trying to survive in this situation of bureaucracy versus poverty. Versus the aspirations of a young man who sees his own world dying, but wants to be successful in whatever world there is in the future. Mm -hmm. So the the chapters about him are based on his employment records and letters. But I wrote them as opposed to writing, editing his story about John. And
0: do we know what became of John?
1: I do not Uh, The last story that I know as a child, uh, he came to visit my grandmother at their home in Connecticut. And she spoke of, you know, how handsome he had become, but yet how um, sad he was because his, obviously his wife had passed um, and, and, that he was moving on, and that she didn't know that she would see him again. She married shortly after that, and then in World War One, the man that she married experienced mustard gas in the war. Oh
0: wow! And
1: and so her life also turned took a tragic turn for a little while. Um, I don't know a lot about what it was like, but I do know that it it changed her life with two little boys, my dad and his brother, dramatically because of what it did to him physically and and emotionally from the war. Wow. So I think that ended all contact between them and John. Well, sad.
0: You know, um, what has your family said? What has been the reaction from your family about the book? I bet they're
1: proud of you for finally putting it together. Like it finally got written, right? Right, they're very thankful that it was it was finished because it was Dad's goal, and and so they they are they are very tickled that that what Dad set out to do finally got done. Uh, definitely, my mom struggles to read it. She she'll read it a little while and then she'll put it down. She hasn't finished it yet because she's it it brings back memories of of you know for her as well. Yeah. So it, it's a little hard for her to read because she remembers what my dad went through with his own father so that was a that's a little bit of a struggle there for her but
0: I see you know it's um I was talking to you a little bit before the show about the Native Americans the Indians and I lived in New Mexico for many years and uh, got 25 30 years now I'm, I'm aging myself and now I'm here in Arizona and you know here we are uh I see the reservations I've been on the reservations I just want to talk about how the Indians are doing today You know, it's interesting. I see the big casinos and I've been on the reservation and you go and the housing's terrible and there are no trees and there's no vegetation and it looks like a ghost town. And then you go to the casinos where they're making all this money. It's a odd um, outcome of their life. Yeah, they still perform their ceremonies and they learn their native languages. Still, it's it's kind of a. What do you think about what's happened to them? I mean, that's what I see. What do you see?
1: Well, I I see the same thing, and yet I. But I also see that they. I, I think the experience of this book for me was a real eye opener in what you what you call generational trauma. Okay. Because I, I what I see now is that finally, the Native Americans are are beginning to recover, just now beginning to actually recover. They They were forced, they lost their identities, They were forced to give up their language, they were forced to, they were forbidden even to dance at the time that this I book know was it's forbidden. crazy. It's I know
0: when I read this, you guys, this is pretty it's really good and it's honest and it's heart-wrenching. And I'm so glad you wrote this because this story needed to be told. You know, it's, yeah, it's under really. the rug. Don't you feel that way?
1: Yeah, I do, but yet I do see that at that that finally there are there are individuals within each of the tribes and I, I think I certainly different tribes are struggling harder than other tribes, but they are seeing the importance of teaching their youth their language, teaching their youth their culture. Yeah. Um the, the buffalo are being returned to yeah. the to the reservations and so the children are learning to, to um to slaughter the animals and to get their food, their nutrition from the natural things that their people are used to. And when you look at what we eat today, when you go in the grocery store and and it's um, meat that you don't know where it came from and um, it's it's products that it's, it's like it maybe has a little bit of corn in it, but you're not really sure exactly how much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're, they're, they're finding their, their own way back to their culture. And I think that that's, that is the best hope because it's not money that they need. It's, oh. it's the return of their culture and their way of life that they need.
0: for the land. Yeah, I just, I, and so do we. And so do we. Right? And so yeah. do we. I mean, we got to get yeah. back. I feel that way, back to basics, back to having a garden and, you know, growing our own food. I agree with you. I go to the grocery store and I don't want to get a whole thing, but I. it's hard for me to buy meat because I don't, you know, and I get sick and I have to really watch it. And even vegetables are sprayed with different things. You get, it's crazy, you know, and that's why it's so important. And I want to mention the Buffalo real quickly, you know, I'm from Albuquerque and there is a place Uh, in right outside of town there. And um, there's all these buffalo near the Sandia uh, reservation, you know, and it's really nice. And if you're in that area, you can go see the buffalo. There's quite a few that roam out there. And so you're right. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, I had never, you know, growing up on a farm in Ohio, I had never seen a buffalo moved to New Mexico. And yeah, they have them, but it's really crazy because on one side of the street, and this is the truth, you see all the Buffalo and there's a big open space for them. And then there's a highway and there's the casino. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, it's just like, what in the world is going on here? But, you know, maybe they take the money from the casinos and they put it back into, um, the land and buying more land. And I, I've heard that too. Um, that some of the monies have gone back into buying purchasing up more land. And I was a real well, yeah. 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 And so I sold land to the Native Americans. So I know they've been buying it back up. Interesting how it all t- it comes around, right?
1: Well, and they're going back to the 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 Lakota particularly were known as horse people. You know, they were uh riders and and the horses were important to them and and they've come full circle they're back to doing the races that like they used to do and and those are those are are things that help the young people to deal with life um life yeah i guess that's a good way to put it that they yeah. i'm sure that they themselves as young people probably walk out and go you know, we were wealthy beyond belief as uh, in the ancient times of having these wide open spaces, the beauty of nature. we lived how we wanted to live. And now here we have money in the white man's category. And yet we're not happy. We're, we're not fulfilled. And so they're finding the, their places with the horses and the racing and the, the, the old way of lives that make them more at peace. And I, I hope, I, I know that a lot of them battle with drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And what I see is that a lot of that is, is, is the the spirituality of the horseback riding and, and being on the, on the land again is helping those young people. Yeah. I think it would help a lot of white people too. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a, exactly color. There is no color to me. I don't like, right. I don't look no. at people with color. And I saw, I just want to mention this picture of you with the horse in the book. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you're a horse person too. And here's the picture. There's a picture here too. And this is the picture. I want you to talk about this, if you would, please. The the,
1: the ledger art, that's yeah. When... Quentin is the first of the of the Lakota that I spoke with on the phone. He's the one who said, who I told, please forgive me. I'm a white lady. So if I ask something dumb, just laugh a minute and then give me an answer. <laughs> um, he is a very well-known ledger artist, Okay. but he also struggles with drugs and alcohol. And so um, because he's, he's probably close to my age, you know, 60s, so he's come up through this time of, of nothing but poverty, not the return to their their culture and their way of life, struggling with, and, and as, a, as an artist, I'm sure that he is much more impacted. Um, I, I've always heard that artists are more sensitive to things. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've got a number of his pieces and, and he does beautiful work. So when I ask him about that, y- you can see in that picture, the little boy is John Okay, let me pull this up. Okay, guys. Okay, so the, the little boy is John. And then the the rider, of course, I believe Quentin intended that to be like the spirit of the Lakota coming back to him to help him get through the school, the educational system, what he was going to suffer through. And then the train is symbolic of the train ride where he goes, he leaves the reservation and comes east to Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Yes. Yeah. So it, it it was something that had a huge impact on his life and so that was what um that's that's the piece that Quentin did for my book. That's great. As what an honor, huh? Yes, yes. It, How cool it tickled is that? me that he was willing to do that. Yeah. Well, yeah.
0: I'm just I'm thrilled that you came to join us today and I just want to congratulate you on putting it together. I mean, I'm sure that your relatives are up there going, "Okay, all right, she did it." <laughs> So I'm sure you're being celebrated in the heavenly realms right now. So I want to commend you for putting it together and getting the information out there because, you know, um, it's history and they're trying to get rid of our history right now. And it's really important yeah. that this history be told, because this yeah. is exactly what's happening right now. Yeah, it's crazy.
1: I would do. You agree? I just I don't know. It's- well, and I, I it will there will always be a battle. Because Earth has limited resources and there will always be those people who want more. And and I hope we will not. always I... against that. Yeah. See, and I hope so... not. My hope is that
0: we'll all we all like start to share because if we would have just been like the Native Americans, what a wonderful example! What a, an, a wonderful example they were. We could have lived like that, but we brought in alcohol, which they couldn't tolerate, and guns, which just killed, you know, so many people. Anyway, I just, you know, back to basics. Yeah, we got to get back to where to where we were. I'm so glad you came on the show. Um, how can people get in touch with you if they would like to ask a question?
1: Well, I have a website, www.jstanyan.com. Okay. And we didn't talk about where the name came from, but J is my father's first initial. Okay. And Stanyan is my great grandfather's last name. Oh, so okay. I All right. Their names as the author's names, because truly they are the writers. Okay. um, I was just kind of the final editor to put it together. So it's www.jstanion.com. they can email me directly off of that website okay um, there's a link there if they're interested in buying the book that it takes them straight to the page on amazon to order the book it's a beautiful so, book you guys well it's well, a
0: fabulous you. and i'm so glad you came on today and i'm gonna leave the audience it is christmas time it is december 22nd and i'm gonna get this show out and i you don't know this but i channel archangel gabriel And so I channeled a message this morning, and I'm going to read it for humanity, for everybody today, and then we'll get out of here. And sit back and relax. This is what he says. Humanity is at a crossroads. The next few years will change things for the collective. You will grow as a people and achieve a higher state of vibration after the wars cease. You will discover that the fighting was not what you had been told It was about humanity is waking up to the lies of a few who have affected many. Goodwill will come out of all of the chaos you see. It's not at all hopeless for you to see the light is peeking through and will become brighter and brighter. People don't want war and conflict, destruction and crime. The vibration is already beginning to shift. Blessings to all.
1: Oh, how cool! So there yeah.
0: is hope. there is hope, and that was his hopeful um message today. And I wanted to leave that. And the other thing I want to say, really quick, guys, I'm going to be teaching angel communication in LA. Uh, it's going to be at the Conscious Life Expo. It's in February, the 9th through the twelfth. I'll be in Florida. Uh, also talking about the angels and connecting with God and connecting with the angelic realm. And that's March 16th and 17th. And I will be in Manhattan in May 16th and 17th. Come and see me and um, I'll teach you guys how to connect with your guardian angel. It's been such a pleasure. I'm so glad that you came to join us today, Gwen. And I wish you a very Merry Christmas a very happy holiday. The same to you. Thank you so much. Yes, right. ma'am. All right, you guys. All right, you guys. We're getting out of here for today. I wish everybody a happy holiday. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Every, everyone take care and God bless.